Welcome to the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion. We're so glad you have joined us for this sermon. You can find all our sermons at our website, holycommunion.net. In the name of our loving, liberating, life-giving God, amen. Please be seated. A blessed epiphany to you. I know that many of you are tired, frustrated by this latest round with the virus. I know I am. I know the doctors, nurses, hospital staff in our community are exhausted. And I wonder whether many of you, like me, spent this week wondering, well, what the heck are we supposed to do now? So I want to begin today's sermon with an old joke. Apologies if you've heard it before, if you've heard it from me especially, but it goes like this. What would have happened if there had been three wise women instead of wise men? Three wise women would have asked directions, arrived on time, helped deliver the baby, cleaned the stable, made a casserole, brought practical gifts like diapers, maybe a bottle of wine, and there would be peace on earth. That joke plays the old gendered stereotypes well. It's part of what gives the joke its punch, but I think there's also some truth in there. Because today I want to posit to you, I think that this story in Matthew, this story of the wise ones, it's all about the illusion of control. For a long time we gendered the illusion of control. That's why it's funny that women would stop to ask for directions, men don't, right? We said men were the ones in danger of trying to control their world. But I think Matthew, the gospel writer, wanted this story to warn all of us across gender and gender expression of the danger of trying to control the world around us. Matthew wants us to see Jesus, even eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus, as an invitation to stop trying to run the world. Matthew wants us to become followers on another road. And the earliest Christians didn't read the Bible, even the Gospels, as primitive history. And it's one of the reasons I love this story so much. It, it sort of gets under our ability to quantify it. But if you watch any kind of like history channel TV special on the wise ones, if you Google the Magi, most of the hits that are going to come up, these days almost any reference to this story consult astronomical charts. People try and decide whether a comet in 5 BCE or a supernova in 12 CE might have been the star of Bethlehem. You come across those stories? We try to get really concrete with data in our day. Our ancestors didn't think that way. Instead, they asked about the capital T truths that could be read allegorically in a story. And St. John Chrysostom in the fourth century preached a sermon about the star. And St. John Chrysostom said this was no ordinary star. It had a divine power to call the wise ones. Chrysostom talks about it almost as if the star had a voice to witness to God's birth. The heavens were telling the glory of God. And the star doesn't just hang over the stable. The star moves ahead of the wise ones. 
what makes the Magi wise in this story is their willingness to listen, to follow, to give up control. Now, the story is a little complicated, of course. There's a foil in the story. Enter Herod. I said in my Christmas Eve sermon, Herod, as soon as he gets wind of Christ's birth, tries to control the narrative. If we keep reading on in this gospel, we will find the Holy Family fleeing to Egypt as refugees, escaping Herod's slaughter of the innocent children who might challenge his claim as ruler. Herod tries to assert control in response to the Christmas story. I think part of what's so frustrating about this moment with Omicron is our loss of a sense of control. In November and December, it had started to feel, at least to me, like we had meet, reached some kind of new normal, a new plateau where we could sometimes take off our masks, we could travel, we could safely spend time together. And part of what is so hard right now is the loss of that little bit of a sense of control we had come to have again in our lives. But here's the truth. The wisest spiritual teachers I know, they say that control is almost always an illusion. We don't have control, not really. Not over our work life, not over our families. Parents of small children know that one well. We don't control our bodies. Sure, we can make some decisions that have measurable effects, but we can't control when we will get sick when we will face a terrible disease. And the wisest teachers tell us control is almost always an illusion. And we can spend a lot of time and a lot of money trying to build and buy the illusion of control. But control is almost always an illusion with one important exception. We do not reliably have control on the events and people around us, but we do have control over our response, over our reaction, over how we think about what's going on around us. You may have heard me quote the writer David Foster Wallace before. In a famous essay, Foster Wallace takes us to the grocery store, the maddening weekly routine. He complains in vivid prose about the angry, ugly, frustrating people in the aisles, about the muzak over the speakers, the bright lights, the intentionally confusing organization of the store to make you have to wander and discover new products. He laments the shopping cart with the debilitated wheel always pulling to the left. Today, we might add to his list the people who aren't wearing masks or who can't seem to keep their masks over their noses even two years into a pandemic. You can feel that frustration build as he writes, but then he turns on you. The point, Foster Wallace says, is that petty, frustrating crap like this the traffic jams and crowded aisles and long checkout lines give me time to think. And if I don't make a conscious decision about how to think, what to pay attention to, 
I'm going to be pissed and miserable every time I have to shop. Because my natural default setting is the certainty that situations like this are really all about me. We do have control over how we feel, over how we respond. We don't have control over how our neighbors choose, choose to show up in the store. We don't have control over our need to get milk, even when the checkout line is long. We do have control about how we show up. We do have control on our inner narrative, about the stories we tell ourselves about our fellow shoppers, about the clerks. We do have control over whether we treat people with patience and kindness even in the midst of a pandemic. But asserting that control, deciding that I'm gonna give someone who is angry the benefit of the doubt, believing that the person rushing around me on Highway 40 may indeed have some life-threatening emergency on their hands, that takes some effort. It takes intentionality. It is not the default setting. And right now, friends, after all these months of isolation and frustration, after years of frighteningly divisive politics, I'm worried about our capacity to control our own reactions, our own responses. I have been trying myself this week to find some compassion for my neighbors who've chosen not to be vaccinated. I've been trying to find some commonality with those who are protesting mask mandates. I, I still disagree. I still support your vestry's decision to require vaccination to attend in-person worship, but I've been trying to find empathy. I'm not always successful. I caught myself this week uh, spending more than a few moments angry, furious, at the tennis star Novak Djokovic, who's trying to sue his way into Australia so he can play in the Australian Open despite being unvaccinated. And I realized partway through my anger that I don't really care about tennis. <laughs> I've never watched tennis. I've never watched more than a few minutes of the Australian Open. And I was letting something trivial occupy so much space in my head. We live in a country where so many people have been robbed of their sense of control. By the virus, yes. But before that, by the skyrocketing price of housing and the decades-long stagnation of wages, by economic inequality, by racism, by gender discrimination, by homophobia and transphobia. We live in a country where thousands upon thousands have been subjected to a criminal justice system that is unjust. We live in a country where millions bought into the American dream that if you're simply willing to work 40 hours a week, you can own your own home, send your kids to good schools, afford quality health care, and retire at 60. For some of us, that dream has panned out, but for far too many, it has turned into a nightmare. So why am I surprised when some of my neighbors fight for control? Why am I surprised when there are protests against masks? Why am I surprised when people don't want to get vaccinated? For that matter, why am I surprised at my own reaction to a misinformed, entitled tennis player? The early Christian way of reading scripture 
it didn't use this story to find a, try and find an exact date for Christmas. It was beside the point. They believed that there was wisdom to be found in the small turns of phrase in this story. The early church read the Epiphany as a wisdom teaching. Don't be a Herod. Don't grasp after the illusion of control. Instead, find the humbler way. It'll make your life less stressful. Though these kings or magi or astrologers, they must have come from wealth, though they had power and riches enough to share, they recognized Herod didn't have the answers. The magi chose not to return to Herod's palace. Instead, they allow themselves to be filled with joy in a humble home. They fall on their knees. They honor a child who, by all human accounts, should have no standing. That same child would grow up to tell his followers to do the same, to bring gifts of clothing and food, to come and to visit. And Jesus would tell his followers to give to the people, to go to the people that they'd least like to see, to the hungry, to the poor, to the naked, to the imprisoned. Jesus said, as much as you do for the least of these, you do for me. When you walk away from the palace, from all that gossip in Jerusalem, when you let go of the illusion of control over the people and events around you, new possibilities can open. When you stop letting yourself use the ready-made stories for why your neighbors are awful and ugly and wrong, when you exchange a measure of certainty for curiosity, new possibilities can emerge. The road to Bethlehem, it doesn't come with the reliable signs of status you'll find on the road to Jerusalem. The road to Bethlehem doesn't come with steady affirmations that you belong to the right party. The road to Bethlehem, it doesn't come with orthodox certainties. If you want to change the world, start by working on your inner monologue. The story of the Epiphany tells us we can choose how we show up where we show up. We can choose to bestow our gifts on the ones who might least expect our generosity. We can let go of trying to control the people and events around us and instead work on being present to the surprising presence of God in each moment, even in a week as frustrating as this one. Amen.